And I would invite your attention to John, the 19th chapter, John chapter 19. It's good to be here at the North Campus. Uh, I'm from the South Campus, and uh, we're encouraged to see what God is doing in both directions. John 19, 28 through 30. The theme we will be dealing with this morning is, It is finished, the triumph of the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head And gave up his spirit. I'm sure all of us can identify with uncompleted duties or tasks. However, Jesus knew nothing of unfinished business. And when he cried out on the cross, it is finished, it produced an echo throughout the ages. Hallelujah, what a savior. But we must ask, what did Jesus finish? Before he created the foundations of the world, there was a pact made in heaven that Jesus would die as a ransom to save his people from their sins. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And in Genesis 3.15, that prophecy opens up after the fall of Adam. We hear God in the garden making the first gospel promise as he pronounces a curse on Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Isaiah picks up this theme in Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for excuse me, an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. When Jesus was born, he had a mission. It was his life's work. And the very first words we hear Jesus uttering when he was 12 years old was an announcement of his mission or his work. He was in the temple and his parents had left and he stayed behind and they asked him, uh, where were you? Why why didn't you come with us? And and he said, "Uh, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house or, in other words, about my father's business? Later, he preaches the gospel to a Samaritan woman and then says to his disciples in John 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish or to finish his work. When questioned about healing on the Sabbath, he replies, My father is working until now and I am working. In John 17, he prays, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, having completed or finished the work. He came to die for the sins of his people. That was his work. And on the day of his birth, there was a long, dark shadow that was cast over his manger. Even though the star was shining bright to lead the magi to him later on, the shadow was cast upon the child As an angel of death, he had a work to do. Like a runner in a race with his eyes set upon the finish line, Jesus always had one thing on his mind, and that was to finish his work. He was so conscious of this work that he often referred to it as his hour. John 2.4, he said to his mother at the wedding of Cana, My hour 
has not come. Later, uh, when his enemies were seeking to arrest him, John tells us, uh, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It was described as a mandate in Mark 8.31. He set his face toward Jerusalem like a flint, and he was very specific about what this work entailed. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The word must in Mark 8.31 means it is necessary. In that context, it meant that Jesus had a divine mandate. And moving toward the last week of his life, we see Jesus heading toward Jerusalem. He heals a blind man on the Jericho Road. And then he and his disciples and many pilgrims make their way up that 15-mile dangerous and dusty journey into Jerusalem. And when they reach the gates of Jerusalem, Jesus is riding on a donkey and he approaches the gates known as, in that time is known as the triumphal entry. And that's Sunday, and the church calls it Palm Sunday, the beginning of Passover week. John twelve thirteen says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The crowds lay out their coats, and, and, and what is believed, the text says, is, is palm branches on the ground as a sign of a welcoming or of welcoming a king. Now, this began the, the Passover week. And as he moves through the Passover week, the Jews are now out to get him. And, and the conspiracy is formed between the chief priests and Judas Iscariot. And John 12 says of Jesus, he's praying, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And by Thursday, when he has his last day with his disciples, they share that Passover meal together. And then into Thursday night late in the wee hours of Friday morning, the day of suffering, his agony in the garden of Gethsemane begins and he, as he ponders the long-anticipated cross. The shadow of the cross is now very short. The candle wick is now but a flickering flame. The betrayal and the arrest then take place, and he's sent to his trials before the Jewish authorities. And Herod and Pontius Pilate are going to try him, and he's been mocked, and he's been beaten, and he's been spit upon, and he's been given a crossbeam to carry up his final ascent to Golgotha's brow, and he's about his father's business. The beam is too heavy. He cannot carry it himself and it is handed off to one standing by. He's on his way to Calvary. And from the time that Jesus was placed on the cross until he died, there are seven recorded statements he made. And one of the most profound was in our text. It is finished. It is one Greek word, te telestai. And it summed up, uh, it sums up in that one word, the completion of his primary work on this earth. And packed in these verses before us and surrounding the context and that cry are the amazing words of what was planned in ages past. That pact was signed 
It was sealed and it is about to now be delivered. Telestai. It is finished are the words of victory that every believer clings to for the hope of their salvation. It is finished should also generate optimism in anyone who is unsaved, who is without Christ. It should generate that optimism to hopeless sinners still clinging to their own righteousness, to their own self-deeds which offer no hope at all. Wallace, in his Greek grammar, says this one word, summary of Jesus, life and death, is perhaps the single most important statement in all of Scripture. Well, what was finished? Well, there are at least seven timeless truths that it is finished proclaims, and all of them speak to the triumph of the cross. And I say timeless truths because the verb it is finished means to complete or to bring to perfection, uh, to accomplish. Uh, It's in the indicative, which speaks to fact or reality. It's in the perfect tense, which speaks of a fully completed action that continues into present day application or results. We must think in these terms to fully appreciate the triumphant work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Now, you note in the text, verses 28 and verse 30, the word finished, tetelestai, is used twice in these verses. And the second one sort of reaches back to the first one. And the first of those seven timeless truths is that Scripture is being fulfilled. Verse 28 says, all was now finished. And that undoubtedly refers to the uh, the accomplishment or the completion of all of the prophetic uh, scriptures in the Old Testament, which pointed to the gospel work of Jesus Christ, including the prediction to the vinegar and his thirst, most likely from Psalm 69, 21. He cries, I thirst. And the Roman soldiers run to offer the drink in perfect fulfillment of the scriptures. And though his death and resurrection are just ahead, John summarizes the fulfillment of the Old Testament saying, all was now accomplished, completed, or finished. Not just I thirst, but everything else that pointed to him, including I thirst in the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament is filled, as you know, with with, uh, shadows and types and prophecies towards this one main event in history, namely the cross. The entire Old Testament is the unfolding of this drama of redemption and and it finds its focal point on the cross. The history of salvation moves towards the accomplishment of that promised decree to save his people from their sins. In Luke 18, 31, Jesus takes the 12 and says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, will be finished, will be completed. Luke 22, 37, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Again, that's related to our word for finished. And so Jesus is bringing to an end or completing the Father's will as predicted in perfect harmony with the Son's obedience to that will. And the Old Testament speaks about all of that and it's coming to a head 
on the cross. John's use of this term finished twice in this text is another way of saying the entire focus of the Old Testament is now finished or completed. That This all points to the specific work Jesus came to do. This hour, his hour, is the center point of all that the Old Testament anticipated. And you know that in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, it tells us that God has previously spoken to us through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his, what? By his son. And so we can see from Genesis 3.15, that first seed prophecy, to Malachi 3.1, and all of those prophecies in the Old Testament are now culminating in this finished work. It's in the indicative. It is a reality. It is a fact. And so we can apply uh, this by thinking of the scriptures with confidence that every word from God will be fulfilled according to his promises. And when we see the scriptures fulfilled, it gives us encouragement knowing that God delivers what he promises. It is finished. It depicts the reality that the scriptures are being fulfilled at the moment Jesus is on the cross and God's promises are as sure to us now from his word as they were then. And Jesus is fully submitted to every detail in order to bringing the scriptures to their final fruition, culminating in the gospel. And it includes the agonizing thirst, which brings us to a second triumphant truth from the cross. And that is suffering ended. Jesus' suffering is noted in that saying, I thirst, predicted in Psalm 69, 21. Jesus is suffering. This was the last of the Old Testament prophecies to be fulfilled before he, before he can cry, it is finished. I thirst. One has said of those words, it's not the isolated fulfilling of a particular trait in the scriptural picture, but the perfect completion of the whole prophetic picture. He was hanging in the midday sun and after several hours with no water, his cry, I thirst, was was a cry of, of humanity. Jesus is now suffering as a man and in that sense, he is one of us. And the first drink that was offered to him was a drugged wine and it was to dull the senses and and make the cross more bearable. And Jesus refused uh, that first drink. He, he wanted to suffer with a clear mind. But now he wishes to say something that needs to be heard loud and clear. He says something that, 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 that now will ring through the ages and he takes the, the vinegar to his parched lips and he cries with a loud voice, it is finished. But he was suffering more than just in his body as a man. I think the dehydration he's undergoing is also theological. He's, he's the God uh, son, they're the God man, God the son becoming sin for us. He's, he's now removed from the smile of, of God the father. He's now bearing the judgment of an eternal hell at the hand of God. And for three long hours, he experiences the abandonment of his father. And Mark it says in Mark 15, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the cry of dereliction. 
And the sky was darkened as Jesus was taking the stroke of God's justice. And Isaiah 53, 8 says he was cut off out of the land of the living. Jesus had enjoyed what John 1, 1 says, that prostan theon, that face-to-face intimate fellowship with his father before he entered this world. And he refers to it in his, his high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. But now he's praying of forsakenness, Psalm 22, 1. And I don't think he's just quoting his favorite memory verse to pass the time. This is a real separation. It is a real abandonment. It is a real forsakenness. It's not just something he felt emotionally, but it is a reality. Even on his worst of days on earth, he never knew a moment of disconnect between him and his father. He relied on him in prayer. He was on his father's mission. Uh, he was doing his father's work. He was all, God the Father was always well pleased with him. And now the dark night is pierced with that lonesome and desperate prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you may ask, well, why? Well, that answer is theological as well. It's not the physical suffering that is the ultimate issue. He was becoming sin for us, and God's eyes are too pure to behold evil, to look on sin. And so he had to remove the sense of his presence from the Son. The fellowship that bound them together was now filled with a gut-wrenching, heart-filled grief. God is an emotional being and he loves and he cares and he cherishes and he nurtures with perfection. And Jesus enjoyed all of that. But now it must be severed. He must go it alone. This is the triumphant work of the cross. And we must never forget the forsaken hour of Jesus. He was forsaken of his father so that the son would never forsake us. You need to think about that. Meditate on that. I will never leave you nor forsake you was his promise. But that suffering will soon be finished. But not quite yet. Out of the three hours of darkness, he still cries, I thirst. And, and he was willing to suffer the burning thirst so that we might enjoy the living water. But it is finished denotes the end of his suffering. We might say, O Lamb of God, O man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and despised and rejected, it is finished. No more mocking, no more harassment, no more false accusing, no more scourging, no more spitting, no more crown of thorns, no more thirsting, no more abandonment, no more forsakenness, no more agony. It's finished. His sufferings are to be ended with those words. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. 
And we might apply that today by thinking of the suffering that we go through. Does he really care? Can he nurture us? Can he sympathize with us? Can he, of course, Hebrews 14 or 415 says we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. He's able to sympathize with us in every respect because he was tempted as we are yet without sin. And so that brings us to the third timeless truth, and that is atonement was accomplished. The long-awaited fulfillment of, of, of the atonement that would take the place of the animal sacrifice was now being finished. And while the Lord was pleased to crush him, he was atoning for our sins. And verse 29 tells us, a jar full of sour wine stood there and they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And it's probably no coincidence that hyssop was offered to him while on the cross. You children should remember the old story uh, uh, that the hyssop brings us back to Egypt when God promised to destroy the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And it was the first Passover where in Exodus 12 where the Israelites were to kill the Passover lamb and a hyssop branch filled or soaked with, with lamb's blood was used to mark the doorpost of each Israelite. And when the death angel was going to march through the land of Egypt killing each firstborn, he would pass by the dwellings marked with that blood. It was protection. It was the blood that kept them safe. And while the wailings were heard throughout the land, the sound and the stench of death was in the air. And every Egyptian firstborn was being killed, even the Pharaoh's son. But God's children were safe inside their dwellings because their, their doorpost was marked by the blood of the lamb put there by the hyssop branch. The Passover was to be perpetually celebrated. Exodus twelve twenty seven says, you, you shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the house of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And now Jesus is shedding his blood. And, and the hyssop reminds us, according to 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ is our Passover that has been sacrificed. And this tells us the type has been fulfilled in the reality. Jesus became the sacrifice that made atonement for his people. Now and forever, the death angel must pass us by. The blood is upon the doorpost of our hearts. And every animal ever sacrificed in the Old Testament was pointing to this final atonement of, excuse me, of Jesus. And that atonement was voluntary. He willingly came and died, Hebrews 10, 7. It was vicarious. That means it was substitutionary. Isaiah 53, 8. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. Verses 10 through 12 of Isaiah 53. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and he shall bear their iniquities. When Jesus was on the cross finishing the work, according to Hebrews 2, 16, which says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. 
He helps. That phrase means he, he lays a hold of or he seizes or he grasps. He is atoning for his people. The eternal decree is being finalized. He is sealing the pact in his blood. He will not default on the agreement. On the cross, he is literally laying a hold of all of those who were promised to him. He's seizing them and holding them to his breast. And he's atoning for their sins, all of their sins, past present and future as you sit here now as the redeemed of the Lamb. But it was also victorious. When he cried, it is finished in anticipation of the resurrection, it was a victorious cry. Leon Morris notes, Jesus died with the cry of the victor on his lips. This is not the moan of the defeated nor the sigh of patient resignation. It is the triumphant recognition that he has now fully accomplished the work that he came to do. Psalm 22 begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it ends with this phrase, they shall come and proclaim the righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. It is finished. And the very moment Jesus was crying, it is finished, the high priest was walking into the Holy of Holies to make a Passover sacrifice. Can you imagine the scene there when the curtain of the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom, demonstrating the power of the hand of God? And there's now no need for another lamb to be offered to atone for the people's sins. The Lamb of God is being sacrificed. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the precious blood of the spotless lamb is crying from the cross. It is finished. Guilty, vile, helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. And certainly we can apply that every day. Refreshing our souls with the gospel that arises out of the finished atoning atoning work of Christ. There's no work left for us to do. There's nothing we can do to add to his work for our justification. It is finished. Revel in that Christian. Meditate upon it. Absorb it. Think about it. Get up in the morning. Walk in the daytime. Go to bed at night. It is finished. Atonement has made been made on my behalf and there's nothing that I can add to that work but I might say to those outside of Christ what works of righteousness do you dare to offer for the salvation of your soul can you look at this sight of the cross and hear his cry it is finished and offend him by offering some good deed some work of your own self-righteousness I would ask you if a fine chef brought you a perfect dish completed with all of his culinary expertise and you said, oh, oh, but it lacks something. I, I think I can improve upon it. Uh, I will add some salt, uh, some pepper, uh, perhaps a little spice. What an insult to the chef who brought you that meal. I would press upon your conscience what a greater insult it is to look at the cross of Christ and to hear those words, it is finished, and say, here, take this, add this. My self-righteousness can be added to the cross work of Christ. 
is a damnable heresy. It is finished. And that is where you need to rest. Oh, unbeliever, rest upon the finished work of Christ and cast your self-righteousness to the dust. The gospel now gets better. Its finish brings the triumphant truth from the cross that the law is silenced or justice is vindicated. Jesus is the second Adam and flawlessly performing what the first Adam failed to do. As the last Adam, Christ kept the whole law for us. He paid the penalty for our sins. It was the cross that divine justice was fully, uh, at the cross where divine justice was fully vindicated, fully satisfied for our justification. And the demands of the law that accuses every sinner, that condemns every sinner, that damns every sinner has been silenced for every believer in those words, it is finished. What the law demanded and God required of us was satisfied in him. The thundering, if you remember, the thundering of the law at Sinai, the quaking of the mountain and the fiery flames, they're they're all a reminder to sinners that God is serious about sin and the law's demands against sin. Perfect obedience is required or the verdict is guilty and the sentence is eternal judgment. Yes, abandonment, forsakenness, condemnation. And God is serious about sin and and the law is relentless. There is no margin of error. There is no room for mercy. There is no place for escape. But the good news is Jesus finished what Adam failed to do and he lived a perfectly obedient life by fulfilling all righteousness and, and righteousness all sinners need for eternal life. But he also finished the requirements of God's judgment for sin. And, and the perfect Savior who lived a perfect life now becomes sin for us that we might be declared righteous through him. And the law now silenced against us because he bore the stroke that justice demands. Wrath poured out upon him so that we may never be condemned. It is finished means that the law against us now has no accusation. All of its demands perfectly fulfilled because God was fully satisfied with the sweet smelling aroma of that sacrifice, that bloody sacrifice upon the cross. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. When he cried, it is finished. It was the God-man sealing our pardon with his blood. And Hebrews 12:2 says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The joy. Can you imagine that? event being the joy but you and I believer were included in that joy while wrath was poured out upon him and the law was being silent and justice was being vindicated there was joy upon his heart to know that his people's sins were being atoned for and no longer would the law ever ever accuse us again for those who rest in him who trust in him bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, in your place, believer, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. 
And we can apply this moment by moment. When guilt arises because we fall short of God's glory, we may flee from the law to the gospel to renew our hope. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about the words of the 18th century preacher John Berridge who wrote, Run, John, and work the law commands, yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. And here we find that in this triumphant work of the cross, it is finished. The law no longer accuses even us who daily know that we wrestle wrestle with indwelling corruption. Sin still sometimes besets us, though we wear the crown uh, and, uh, of, of, of Christ and his righteousness. He has left that principle in us that, that we fight against through the Spirit day by day. And the agony of it sometimes leaves us breath and hopeless, but I would commit to you and submit to you that it is finished and the law can never, ever again accuse you and condemn you, believer. It is finished. But even more, the fifth note of the triumph of the cross, it is finished means Satan defeated Satan and all the hosts of hell were among those gawking at the spectacle hanging on the cross. They knew their defeat was near, but they did not know if there could have been some mistake. Perhaps he will not survive this event. Perhaps we will be in charge after all. There were some, no doubt, Jews standing around uh, and heard his cry of abandonment and said, wait, let's see if Elijah will save him. This was no doubt a Jew who had been taught that Elijah would rescue the righteous at the last moment in a crisis. And, and perhaps they were mocking at that moment. But the devils, not being omniscient, might be clinging to hope that he would not survive. Maybe Genesis 3.15 was not really going to happen right now. But not so. It is finished with the triumphant cry. And Satan and all the hosts of hell trembled at those words. Toby Free researched the line in Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And that little phrase, one little word shall fell him. Uh, Luther was referring to this word, telestai. It is finished. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, that is the devil. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Telestai, it is finished, has triumphed even over the devil himself. And that ought to refresh and encourage and strengthen our souls today. One little word has defeated the devil, denounced the prince of darkness. Or as John the Apostle puts it in John 12, Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And so in Genesis 3.15, the fulfillment is taking place. The Lord's heel was bruised, but 
Satan's head was crushed. And, and now that lion walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But he can never destroy the child of the triumphant king. The temptation of Christ at the beginning of his ministry was the down payments towards Satan's demise. And the cry, it is finished, seal the deal. And the resurrection was the proof that it was a done deal. It is finished means the gates of hell have no hope of prevailing against the church and the church militant will indeed become the church triumphant. It is finished means that no blood-bought son uh, can ever be lost. It is finished means the gospel will be marching victoriously and preached to every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And wherever the gospel goes, the blinded eyes shall see and the lame in heart shall jump and walk and the dead in sin shall be free. The veil that Satan has used to darken sinners' minds shall be lifted by the glorious gospel of light and all because Jesus was able to say, it is finished. And that ought to impel our evangelism. It ought to give us hope when we go out into the world, when we send missionaries, when we do a mission work for those who are beyond these borders of the United States. The, 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 the work of the devil has been put in, 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 uh, in, in its place by the triumphant work of the cross. And the gospel is the victory that lifts the, excuse me, the veil from the blinded eyes. Even the fear of death is gone. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. On the cross, Jesus placed his foot on the neck of Satan. And we can apply this every day. Every believer faces the temptation from his enemy, this very enemy, the devil. But through Christ, we might now resist the devil and he must flee. Resist the devil and he will flee from you is only possible because Jesus cried, it is finished. John said we've overcome the spirit of Antichrist. And how so? John 4 for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And this can only be grasped through this cry on the cross, this triumphant cry, it is finished. There is a sixth triumphant cry, or truth, timeless truth from that cry, it is finished, and that is his love is demonstrated. I'm just going to say this about that point John 13:31 Now before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end he he loved them to the end but that doesn't mean that his love stops there it continues to the end of time as we know it but on into eternity it is the love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is summed up in this mandate to die for his own. His love is now in this text being poured out from the cross to all of us who believe. All has been accomplished on our behalf. True love finishes the tasks promised. Think about that day by day before we move to that final point. When, when you feel rejected, 
when someone's uh, who you love upon the earth has spurned you, when there is a broken relationship, there is grief and agony in the heart, but there is an everlasting love that arises out of this cross work of Christ that will never fail. It is an everlasting love because there is no end to what uh, what ends or to what lengths it will go. It is finished, has accomplished for us the love of God, the love of Christ. Consider that love when you find failed love on this earth. But finally, glory opened. When Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. He opened the door of heaven for every believer. It is finished, opened up the gates of heaven. And the first to go with him was that repentant criminal. You remember on the cross, there were two thieves. And one of them turned to Jesus in Luke 23. And he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And because Jesus finished his work and finally rose from the dead, an entrance into glory is ready for all who believe. And one day we shall leave these mortal bodies and come face to face with Christ our Savior. 1 John 3, 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John 19, 30. Our text says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And in that bowing of his head, the gates of heaven were opened, not only for the man who called upon him on the cross, but all of those who would believe upon his name. They too find the glorious gates of heaven are opened for eternal life now and forever. It's interesting that that word bowed in our text is a word that can be used for laying one's head down on a pillow to sleep. And the irony of it is Matthew 8, 20 says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That word lay in Matthew's text is our word for bowed. No resting place on earth. Excuse me, but a pillow on the cross. He pillows his head and opens heaven's gates for our eternal rest in glory. And one day, whether in death, uh, whether in the resurrection, when the Lord comes to meet us, we shall be ushered into the very presence of the Lamb. And the gates of glory will be opened and we, we shall enter in. All because it is finished. And sin... And temptation will then be over. Suffering and death will be no more. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all compassion. And our hearts groan as does all of creation waiting for that final day of redemption. But the long winter has ended. I told them in the first service, I'm a Southern California boy. 
the sun shines a lot in Southern California, and the winters in Nebraska tend to be long. Last winter was really, really long, uh, and, uh, and finally it ended, and springtime came. But I want to remind you that the long winter of this life's grief and sin and pain and, and all of the agony that you have suffered and others around you have suffered, summer or springtime and glory is coming. Winter has ended in heaven, and we shall then behold him face to face. Oh, what will it be? Heaven will be one long, eternal Palm Sunday. John notes in Revelation 7 uh, that, that we will be standing from every tribe, nation, language, tongue, uh, uh, peoples before the throne and the Lamb clothed in white robes. And guess what? It says we will have palm branches in our hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they were on their faces worshiping and praising God and praising Christ, praising the Lamb for His finished work. And we, dear beloved, will be there sealed on the cross through those words it is finished but a final word my time is gone if you're an unbeliever read Revelation read Revelation 21 Verse 8 says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. When John looks at the heavenly place of our eternal dwelling, he sees the believers safe on the inside, just like in that first Passover in Egypt. But on the outside, he says, are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And so I would say to you, if you're an unbeliever, all your hopes and your righteousness in this world are but sinking sand. But to us who believe, who know him, we will be welcomed into the arms of Jesus. Jesus is our eternal hope and, and all other ground is truly sinking sand. And we may even stare at that last enemy and cry, Oh, monster death, it is, a, it is an enemy. You've been to funerals. Some of us have preached funerals and we've looked at that lifeless body in the casket and, and the grief and the crying and the agony, the tears. But all of that for believers will be ended. It is finished. Where is your victory, oh, death? Where is your sting? It is finished. Death may consume my earthly body but I shall dwell with Jesus forevermore. And through the veil of tears, we shall awaken his likeness and we shall see him as he is. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Our great and gracious gods, Time does not permit us to exhaust even these few phrases in this text, especially, it is finished. But help us to have those words ring in our minds every waking moment of our life until heaven opens and we come face to face with the precious Lamb.
we pray in his worthy name.